Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Greetings and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and we are ready to pivot into off-season mode. And to do that, I am joined by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. I am 100% in off-season mode. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the purposes of this podcast. No, I'm uh, I'm ready, man. I think we both talked about how, look, obviously we enjoy watching NBA ball. Like, it's what we do. We're very fortunate to be able to do it for a living. And it's awesome, clearly. But... There is a point, and I think especially because of the way the last three seasons have been with the like shortened off seasons and the truncated seasons and all the COVID stuff where it really does feel like the last two and a half seasons have kind of like merged into one and it's been this one long slog and it, it just feels like we, we kind of got so into the nitty gritty of like the day to day with the actual games and what was going on in the court that, you know, there are times maybe in the past where you get sick of like the off season rumors and traits. I'm actually right now very refreshed by it. Like I am very ready to just like talk about what teams are now doing off the court to prepare for next season, the moves they're making, the picks they might like, I'm ready to do like more ready for that than I've been in years because it is just a nice break from strictly talking about what's happening on the court. Yeah. And also just like getting to decide what to do with my evenings you know knowing that I'm not gonna have to sit down and watch I mean toward the end obviously the field gets winnowed down but early in the playoffs it's like watching three games back to back to back and you have all your nights planned out for you and now there's like a little bit more autonomy with that and uh, you know it comes along with summertime so that's always a nice change of pace yeah we're basically teachers Um, (laughs) it's true I will say I yeah I I spend a shameful shameful amount of time during the season on weeknights uh trying to come up with as accurate as possible of that list that I always talk about with you know like who is the best player on the court in every single game like way too much of my life has has been spent to creating that game for every single NBA game that takes place oh yeah so who won this season I'm pretty sure Jokic did by a long shot let's uh do do you continue it in the playoffs because I do Okay, I, I mean, I, I don't, but I do. I separate it. Yeah. So so go go round uh, by round. I want to know who who are the belt. Okay, holders. so I don't I don't mean I separate it round by round. I mean I separate the playoffs from the regular season. I see. So, according to my uh, eyes and uh, the stats, Nikola Jokic was the best player on the court forty eight times this season. Uh, next was Doncic at forty, then Embiid at thirty eight in the playoffs. Jimmy Butler was the best player on actually Jimmy Butler and Luka Doncic both at nine. And then Steph was at seven. 
That's really interesting. So the, the the Warriors won 16 playoff games, and you're telling me Steph was only the best player on the floor game well, seven? Well, there was them? a few of them in the West Finals where I, I had Doncic there. And then there was a few games early in the run where, like, Draymond had a game or, like, Poole had a game. I mean, in the finals, I think I gave Wiggins one or maybe, yeah, one game, two games. But that is, uh, I, uh, even me looking at it right now, I'm surprised and wondering if there's a typo there. But, no, I've got, I got Steph at seven for the playoffs. This is the kind of thing that would get, quote, tweeted by an active player if you were tweeted out saying yes. that your methodology is clearly way off yeah. and these blog boys are ruining NBA discourse. Because that, that say, cannot uh, be right. Actually, it's funny because if you if you go through the years, I think this was the fourth year I did it. I did it 2018, 19, 19, 20, 2021, and 2022 now. The four years I've done it, and it's not really that surprising, I guess, but the guy who's won MVP has ended up at the top of that of that list for me because Giannis had it the two years he won it, and then Jokic had it. And both, actually all four times, I'm pretty sure if I remember, like the guy ended up way ahead of the pack. Yeah, I've I've spoken to several MVP voters who said they cast their vote because of your system. So, yeah, kudos to you for uh, for getting it right. I guess the last four years, but I guess okay. Qu- quick question for you that's sort of in that vein because it's a thought that I've had in the past. Where I, when did Finals MVP start being given? I think it was like sixty eight or sixty nine, maybe. I feel like Jerry West was the first guy to win it, right? And he he won it. In like a I know he's effort. the only guy to win it on a losing team. Was he the first guy to actually? I think that 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 year that he won was the, the first point? year that they gave it out, which I'm pretty sure was in '69. So we're talking about now. You o- are correct. Over sir. 50 years worth of history of that award. They've given it out in the finals and only the finals. Obviously, this year they start giving out the conference MVP awards. Which is similar to what they do in baseball, right? ALCS and NLCS MVP along exactly. with World Series MVP. Consi- and in hockey, you get it for the entire playoffs. That's playoff that's what I'm wondering because I, I have kind of always felt like the Conn Smythe was the actual best way to award playoff performance. Like the best way to actually tell the story of a postseason to me felt like, you know, the Conn Smythe, an award for like the best player for the balance of the playoffs rather than just a, a single series. Do you think that would make sense for basketball or do you like, I mean, I guess now they're giving it out for three separate series, but do you like the specificity of that? I mean, I, I'm, all, I'm all right with it. I'm kind of indifferent, but I do like the con Smythe better. I do like awarding the guy who I think was the best player throughout the play, like throughout the journey, you know, not just in the final 10 to 14, 10 to 16 days, whatever it is. But I will say that I think, and I've, I've, I've used these words like so many times. I'm sure people have heard it and maybe rolled their eyes because I say it all the time. But like the NBA is the most championship exclusive league. And like I feel like the NBA more than any other league, like really not that it prioritizes the finals above all else. Obviously, every sport the championship as well matters. But there is something when it comes to the finals in the NBA, right? There is something that comes with the NBA more than any other league and basketball more than any other sport just because of the nature of the sport and the way a player can dominate it is much more, even when you look at like the history of it, is much more tied to like what have the best players won and what have the, how many times have they won and how much have they won on the biggest stage. And I think finals MVP very much like plays into that. I just think it is very narrative based, but I think it for the NBA, it actually fits to give an award for who was the best player in the finals or like who, 
yeah, who who was the best player for these you know two weeks that ultimately decided the championship? I'm I'm completely on board with a playoffs MVP. I like that more, but I also understand why for maybe the NBA specifically and uniquely, Finals MVP actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. Again, it's it's not going to change because that has been the history, and you know I I can't imagine them expanding. <laughs> these awards past the conference finals. Like, I don't think we need conference semifinals MVPs uh, to go along with it. But I think the fact that they did that, Bubble, the fact that they started giving those awards out clearly, like that indicates to me that they wanted to like reward excellence at various other points of the playoffs, not just the finals. I mean, maybe it's just that they like giving out hardware and want like, which is play in play in tournament MVP. <laughs> I mean, look, they did all bubble teams, right? Like, that was a run of eight games, so why not? Uh, I'm cool with it. I just think... I've always liked the Con Smythe as a concept and as an award, and I've always yeah, sort of thought that that would be a, a better representation. Because, like, you know, even thinking back to, like, 2015, right? Like, Andre Iguodala doesn't win whatever the NBA's version of the Con Smythe Award would be in 2015. Probably LeBron yeah. would have won that one, right? Yes. Uh, or yeah. Or Steph, but, like, I think... I don't know. That's, that's I think if it was more Con Smythe uh, format, I think LeBron would have a few of them, even in years where his team did not win the championship. Yeah, that's that's very possible. You, you think he wins that that 2014 Con Smythe instead of I mean, Kawhi? He, he wins the 2007 one, even though his team got swept in the finals, that. or at least he should. Maybe yeah, give it to him because he got swept. But his team got swept in the finals, and he was still the best player in that playoffs. Would not have won in 2011. That no, was he, he would have finished by JJ Brea in the voting. <laughs> um, okay, that's we spent yeah. more than enough time on that. We're recording this on Thursday morning. The NBA draft is tonight. If you're listening to this, that draft will have already taken place. But I just sort of want to level with our listeners and say, and I know we've mentioned this on this podcast before, but Cash, you and I are not draft guys usually after a season ends we'll have a little bit more time than we had this year to do you know at least a surface level dive into like some of the top prospects in the class read scouting reports from various different sources watch some film form our own opinions at least a little bit I feel like and I know you told me off air the same thing like I haven't had time to do any of that this year so I think it would be a disservice to our listeners to like react to the draft and pose like we know what we're talking about when in truth we don't and we'd just be like regurgitating talking points that we'd heard from people who have actually done the work so yeah i don't know what you're talking about i uh i spent quite a bit of time yesterday watching ncaa and euro ball highlights i am now <laughs> the foremost expert yes well i mean you you wrote a great piece about the the new wave of seven footers which Thanks. Everyone should go and read right now if they haven't already. Sure. Um, and we had, you know, you had Chico Nacion on the pod when I was away talking about his feature on Chet Holmgren. So you've done a little bit more of the legwork than I have, but um, still not, still not anything near a, a draft expert. Like here's, here's the, my, the extent of my like prospect knowledge right now, other than like the top few guys, because obviously over the course of the year, I've Paulo Banquero, Holmgren, even Jabari Smith, you know, as he crept into the number one conversation, I've know a little better but like I, I basically i'd say from like four or five well the two canadians matherin and sharp i know okay let's say 
there's like five guys I feel confident talking about. And after that, the guy who could go like number seven, the extent of my knowledge on him might be like a point form thing that says like good shooter. Like I, I just don't know enough about these guys. To your point, it would be, it would be like disingenuous of us and a disservice to our listeners to pretend like we have strong opinions about, well, I can't believe this guy went nine when, you know, this other guy was on the board because someone else's work about their knowledge on this pros- on these prospects like really has me thinking otherwise. Like, no, I'd, I'd rather, like you said, do what we usually do and get to know these guys over the offseason, put some work in there, and we can talk about them, you know, next year. Yeah, and I mean, I, I will just say, based on my 10 to 15 minutes of highlight viewing, that Jaden Ivey is going to be a superstar and he's going to be the best <laughs> player in this class. That's That's my takeaway. Anyway, so basically, unless, I mean, lots of stuff happens on draft night, including trades. So if anything noteworthy on that front happens, we will come back. We'll tack on a little segment either at the front or the back of this uh, to break that stuff down. But as far as just like reacting to the draft itself and who gets picked where, uh, I just don't think that we are operating with enough of a frame of reference to really talk intelligently about that or offer any insight. So in spite of the fact that you're going to be listening to this after the draft, most of what we're going to be talking about um, is going to be non-draft related stuff. And in terms of, like I mentioned off the top, making that shift into off-season mode, we already do have two relatively significant trades to react to. But before we do that, and before we jump headlong into the off-season, I did want to take a minute, and I teased this on our last episode, but I want to take a minute to maybe reflect a little bit on the postseason we just saw from a macro perspective, because we did a lot of micro conversations talking about uh, adjustments and counter adjustments and specific games and plays that happened within those games. And it was all very granular, but in a big picture sense, Uh, I wanted us each to kind of come in and and talk about maybe the biggest takeaway that we had from the postseason as a whole. So I will give you the floor to tell me what you thought, man, after, after watching that entire postseason, after, you know, doing your exercise where you broke down who the best player was on the floor in every game that you watched after 20 odd podcasts with me over the course of that couple of months. Uh, what what'd you come away feeling about this postseason as a whole? I don't know if I think anything um, different or necessarily new. I thought it was interesting, and I, I actually linked to it in that piece about the, the new wave of seven-footers that you talked about. Writer's name is Lev Akabas. Uh, I believe that's how you pronounce it, for Sportico. I think there's a lot of European stuff. But anyway, um, wrote uh, a really interesting piece uh, recently about how the, the 2022 finals had the smallest lineups on average of any finals in history. And within that piece actually also had some really good tidbits of information about how teams in the playoffs, like within the actual playoffs succeeded when they went with smaller lineups in comparison to the, the exact same teams when they went with their biggest lineup. So I thought that was interesting. If you think about it from like a big picture, the way the game continues to trend, despite the fact that I just wrote a 2000 word feature on, on seven footers. But, um, Maybe from like a more simple level, and I know this is in no way like reinventing the wheel and what I'm saying probably won't be new or surprise anyway, anyone, but 
I came away from these playoffs maybe more than ever, even though I knew these things were already important, thinking like from now on throughout the season, when I'm like looking at a team that's playing well or looking at a team that I liked and they're playing well in terms of like even calling them a fringe contender, like any of that, I'm, I'm going to ask myself two questions. Do they have a true star level shot creator and do they have an elite defense and if the answer to any of those two questions is no I will not even call them a fringe contender because I think these playoffs reinforce the idea that you need those are the two main components those are the names of the game right now to compete for a championship and it's not just this year you can expand that out I mean I'm sure you can go back and say that's been that way forever but I think more so right now between the type of shot creation that's necessary in the current NBA, the defensive versatility, however you want to think about defense, but those are the two pillars for me right now. I'm sure you can get into a deeper conversation about whether you need more than one star level shot creator. I'm not sure you do. I guess it depends on whether you consider Jordan Poole a star level shot creator or not to say whether Golden State is a second one, but you need one true star, star level shot creator and an elite defense to compete for a championship in the NBA. And I'm more convinced of that than ever. Uh, if you look at just these playoffs, even just the conference finals, obviously, and you look at each team, even if you just want to look at the top guy, like Steph, Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Luka Doncic, I don't think anyone's arguing over whether those guys are superstar level shot creators. Maybe Jimmy Butler at times you could have argued it, but when it gets to the playoffs, I don't think you can argue it, right? Whether it's luck or not. I mean, it keeps happening every year, so... And then also, if you look at the teams that made the conference finals, if you look at cleaning the glass, is defensive uh, rating rankings where they you know filter out garbage time and all that. The four conference finalists this year: first, second, fourth, and eight in defense. You look at the last five champions uh, in the NBA: second, ninth, third, fifth, tenth, and second in defense. Oh, and first as well. So that that's the last six. Um, like. Yeah, and it's funny that the, the again, bu- I know, Bucks, I know, this is something. The Bucks are the outlier there. Like they're the team that finished tenth. And I think we right, know and that's that, only because they did. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think we know that at their best, they are actually a lot better than that. They spent a lot of the season trying different stuff, tinkering, like trying to expand their sort of defensive repertoire, which led to some bumps in the road during the regular season. But come playoff time, like they were the best playoff defense. Yeah, no. So, so I was going to say, even with that tenth and with the Bucks outlier, it's not even necessarily that like when I pose this question next season or when we talk about teams for the season, it's not even that it's necessarily going to be like, well, are they in the top five or six? It's not it, but it's more so you have to look at a team honestly and say, are they truly capable of being elite defensively? And I think like that Bucks team, for example, we both could have said, even within that season, they're not defending as well as they usually do. But I don't think either one of us would have like doubted that they could or that they would, you know, yeah, and it was the same, so it was the same thing this year. Like, they finished 14th in defense this year. And like we talked about, even in the lead-up to the playoffs, like, the, their offense was always the bigger concern to me. I knew, especially with Brooke right. Lopez coming back, that they were going to be able to ratchet it up to another gear. So, obviously, like, how a team actually performs in terms of their defensive rating is important. But there's got to be some element of context and eye test there where you're saying, okay, yeah, this team might be, like, 13th in defensive efficiency, but I can see here whether it's like by shortening their rotation or by nailing down the scheme that they want to play, like come playoff time, they're going to be a top shelf defensive unit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's, uh, that's my, 
big picture takeaway again. I don't know. I don't know if maybe that's a bit cheap because it's not necessarily something that. I mean, I, there's nothing new about it, but I did come out of this postseason more than any any of the recent ones. Like just more convinced. Like it's something that even as the finals were happening, like I remember even saying like, "This is one." Like next season, I'm asking myself these two questions about any team mm. that I even reference because I also think, and maybe I'm more guilty of it than others, but. I think in general, we're loose with a like fringe contender. Can they get like, there's contenders and there's, you know, non-contenders. And for me, it's like, if, if, if a team can't answer these two questions in the affirmative, they are not true contenders. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And it dovetails with my big takeaway, which is more focused on the defense. But I think those two things are very related, right? Like the extent to which ridiculously high level defense is being played in the latter stages of the playoffs. And specifically to me, like the defensive versatility that's on display. And I think that's maybe the thing that, you know, it's not entirely new, but certainly in the last few years, I think we have seen, if you want to make a deep playoff run, you got to be able to play a lot of different types of high level defense. And Every team is going to have their base, like the thing that they go to most often. And I think any base, you know, as long as it's executed well, there, I don't think there's any one kind of way to play that is going to, you know, be uh, more of a predictor of playoff success than any other necessarily. Like drop coverage, for instance, as a base, to me, if you're a good drop defense, like that's still probably the best base defense to have and to have down pat. I mean, even even the Celtics who like I I wouldn't have necessarily called them a drop team coming into the playoffs, but look at how effective they were playing drop over the course of the postseason. That includes the finals by the way when they got raked over the coals on a number of occasions for playing drop against Steph Curry. We talked about that a bunch and like the pros and cons of it and I you know wasn't always a fan of the way that they deployed it. But at the end of the day, you look at like first shot half court defense in the finals, the Warriors had a worse offensive rating in those scenarios and first shot half court possessions than the Celtics did in the finals. They were at wow. 91.9 points per hundred on those possessions. And that would have ranked them 24th in the regular season. Celtics were a shade ahead at 92.1. So they were basically dead level which just says like the Warriors won that series because they were much better at scoring in transition and they were better on the offensive glass. So generating second chances on those half court possessions. So even the Celtics like playing drop, which may have been ill-advised against Steph Curry was still super effective. Point being like that, that's a great base to have, but you need to be able to supplement it with a lot of alternatives. And I think, Again, looking at the teams, like you mentioned, the four conference finalists, all top eight defenses. And I think the conference semi- and the two, Sorry, and the two finalists, literally first and second, the top two defenses. Exactly. And even if you go back around a, a further, the conference semifinalists, you've got six of the top eight defenses. And again, one of the two that didn't fit that qualification was Milwaukee, which with Brooke Lopez healthy and that team you know, playing at top gear and full effort was easily still a top five defense, probably top three. So yeah, with Giannis and a healthy Brooke Lopez. Yeah. And true. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that is what you're seeing. Like we're, we're in this scoring boom, 
right? Where offensive ratings are continually going up, 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 even though this, this year actually it came down a little bit from last year, which may have been an outlier year because of a lot of it was played in empty gyms and uh, shortened off season, shortened season. I feel like there are reasons you can point to for why that may have been an outlier season. But for the most part, offensive ratings are increasing. And some people will take that as evidence that like, you know, you'll hear, I I don't think anybody smart who actually pays attention to what goes on on the court in the NBA is making this point, but you'll certainly hear talking heads or casual fans say, well, nobody plays defense in the NBA anymore because they'll sort of just look at the inflation of scoring numbers and offensive efficiency and point to a lack of defensive effort as the reason for that. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It's really just a a matter of, you know, obviously there have been some rule changes that have been designed specifically to make offense easier and to open up the floor. You also just have teams being a lot more intentional about where they're taking their shots from and really streamlining their shot profiles to get the most efficient possible offense. You're seeing teams playing at much faster paces, which we know like transition offense is consistently more efficient than half-court offense. I think what was pretty interesting to me this season, I felt like we started to see more of an emphasis on offensive rebounding, where like, I feel like that had been de-emphasized in the past in favor of transition defense in order to take away some of the open-court opportunities that can be so efficient you know, for opposing teams. But also, like some of the most efficient offense you can get is on second chances. And not only generating extra possessions on on the offensive glass, but generating really efficient offensive possessions on the offensive glass is something that I feel like teams started to place a lot more value on this season. You know, and like just couple that with basically a a continually rising level of skill, whether it's shot making, like across every position now, like the baseline for offensive skill for shooting is so much higher than it used to be. There are all these factors that have led to the increase, you know, the, the offensive environment that we're now in that are completely beyond the defense's control. And yet, I think the the defensive ingenuity that that has forced on teams, you know, that, that has been required to sort of keep pace in that environment has led to some of the most intricate and high-level defense that we've ever seen played. And that's where the versatility comes in, right? Because there are so many different ways that modern offenses can beat you. You have to be able to shapeshift in order to take multiple things away. So that was, you know, the teams that that we saw, I think, advancing far in the postseason and legitimately contending for the title were the teams that were able to do that. You know, like you can look at Dallas, right? Like Dallas was putting up historic offensive numbers early in Luka's career, but it wasn't until they got really serious about defense this year that they were actually able to make a serious postseason push. Yeah, their their first three seasons with in the Doncic era defensively, uh, their rankings were 18th, 18th, 21st, and then this year seventh. Not surprising which year they won a round or two rounds. Actually, yeah, and it's like look at Brooklyn, right? Like Brooklyn, I've mentioned this a couple times now. They had more success than any other team in the playoffs at scoring against Boston's defense, despite the fact that Durant had like one of his worst postseason series ever. And yet it didn't matter because they were tissue paper on defense and they made the Celtics, you know, pretty pedestrian offense look like a freaking juggernaut. So 
I, I, I think, I just think we really saw like in spite of the offensive environment we're in, like defense still rules the NBA and defense still wins championships. And it's like, by the time we get to the finals and we're watching the two best defenses go head to head, you're seeing all that stuff on display, the versatility and the ability to execute multiple schemes, sometimes within the same possession and just switch things up on the fly. And the teams that were really challenging for the title are like able to do it in so many different ways. Like play, they can play big or small. They can drop or they can switch. They can handle pick and rolls two on two, or they can engage a third defender and then navigate, you know, the shorthanded scenarios on the back end of that. All of them had like various zone looks that they were throwing out there. And so to your point about that going hand in hand with also needing an elite shot creator, I feel like the fact that there are these defenses that can shapeshift and play like any style to suit their opponent, basically, that has amplified the need to have the type of player who can bust basically any coverage. And I think where that gets really interesting and really complicated is when you look at the types of players who can do that, but who also compromise their teams at the other end of the floor. Like, not to pick on Ja Morant, but let's take Ja as an example. You know, he he still has flaws in his offensive game, like pretty much just the jump shooting, I would say. So it's not like he he's not a Steph-level coverage buster, but obviously he is a, the driver of really efficient offense for Memphis, but they defend way, way, way better without him. And like the question of, can the Grizzlies build a championship level defense with John Morant at the center of everything is like a pretty pertinent one. So it's like, you got, how do you find that balance between keeping that shot creator that you need on the floor without it compromising your defense too much? I mean, like that, that's going to be a pertinent question for the Hawks with Trey young. It's been a, a major question for the jazz with Donovan Mitchell. That that's what I'm going to sort of be keeping my eye on moving forward. And it's, that much like the the fact that Steph was like he he's basically I would say an average or maybe even slightly above average defender for his position essentially being able to operate within that Warriors defense and allow them to do all the difference all, all the different kind of things that they did while being the any kind of coverage buster that they needed at the offensive end like that's that's where Ja I feel like needs to get to in yep. order for the Grizzlies to get over the hump and even, I mean, again, not to pick on, on Ja, but we are talking about him now. Like, when you talk about the flaws in his offensive game, right, and mostly with the jump shooting, again, you know, championship contention is like a super, super small list. If we're talking like true contenders, right? Not, you know, every team that we can slide into the fringe, like under the, what, what I was talking about with the fringe thing. If you're talking true, true contenders, it's a very limited list. And so you need to be very conservative, say, with how you cut the list down. And based on that, and based on everything I was saying about being more stringent when I ask myself these questions next year, and, and and based on your correct assessment of his still offensive flaws, even a player like Ja, who anyone who listens to this podcast knows how much of a fan I am of Ja Morant, one of my favorite players to watch in recent memory, the audacity of it, the entertainment of it, all of it. I think he's amazing. He's a franchise pillar already at a young age. Having said all that, based on my like stringent questions i ask myself now about if a team is a contender do i think john morant's a championship like a true superstar level shot creator 
I'd say right now, no. Doesn't mean he's not a, a star in general. Doesn't mean he can't be the best player on a great team, which he already is. But if I ask myself, is John Moran a true star level, championship level shot creator? I'd have to say the answer is no. Interesting. Just because of, of the jump shooting limitations. Yeah, like like how can how can I how can I honestly say to myself that he is if he can't if he can't consistently make a shot from a certain level of the floor. Now, I guess what you could argue is that like, well, he's a he's a star level shot creator in a lot of different ways, yeah. and the one where he maybe still lacks can be made up by others on his team. So why does it matter if he is the like and and I I think that's a fair I think that's a fair question to ask. Yeah, I mean like his ability to create Right. Quality two point looks for himself and quality three point looks for his teammates. Like that's, you know, and I understand what you're saying about that being a a significant limiting factor in today's NBA. But I mean, he didn't, he didn't really have much trouble creating offense for himself, even against that Warriors defense that we saw completely shut off Boston's water in the finals. Like he had, significantly more success scoring against that Warriors defense than anyone on the Celtics did. Do you, do you think your best shot creator, like if you're talking about being a title team needs to be a three level scorer, or do you think that's less important as long as like the three level scoring is made up for on a team level? Uh, I hew closer to the latter than the four because Giannis isn't a three level scorer. Right. Right. You know, but yeah, I guess you could argue though, like say like a guy like Chris Middleton, who's not their best player, but if you wanted to say like, well, but he's that like star level shot creator and he's a three level guy. But yeah, I mean, I, I think at that point it's kind of semantics. Like it, uh, I'd, I'd probably agree with you if it's made up for on a team level. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm not going to say that it doesn't matter. Like it would be, you know, Josh should be in the gym hoisting a thousand threes a day for the entire off season. But like, I don't think that he can't be that guy offensively in the current state that he's in as, as a player. Like, I think he needs to get up to like something resembling the level that Steph Curry is at on defense, where this incredible defensive infrastructure that the Grizzlies have built, which we saw on display this entire season when jaw was out. And then again, in the playoffs, when jaw was out, they had as much success as any team at slowing down that warriors offense without him. You know, he needs to get up to the level where they can continue to do that with him on the floor. But yeah, I mean, again, it's like, we're, we're always sort of talking about the, in the playoffs, the tug of war between proactivity and reactivity. And I felt like watching this postseason start to finish, offense was reacting to what defenses were doing more often than the other way around. You know, like defense felt to me like the more proactive entity than offense. And so, you know, first of all, having an offensive player who is proactive and who can dictate what the defense does rather than vice versa is a massive advantage. But there's really just like a tiny handful of players around the league who fit that description. So I think barring that, you need elite reactive offensive players who can take what these defenses are giving them and then be able to to help, you know, their team's defenses hold up at the other end of the floor. Like that's that's why Chris Paul, you know, before he turned into a pumpkin on his 37th birthday, that's why he was so valuable to me as a as a playoff player because he could do that. I mean, he could basically bust any coverage. 
between, you know, his pull-up jump shooting and his passing, even though he wasn't able to really to get to the rim anymore. And then he was able to hold up defensively as well, you know, until, until the Mavs just sort of started singling him out and picking on him time after time after time. Uh, and then it kind of fell apart for him at both ends of the floor. But if you're looking at, you know, the type of player that you want to have at the center of everything on offense, like it doesn't have to look like Steph Curry, you know, it could look like pre 37 year old Chris Paul as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, we said it coming into the series. It was my feeling coming out of the series. Like that, that finals was all about defense and that not taking anything away from Steph Curry's offensive heroics, which obviously the Warriors needed in order to win. But like they won the finals, I feel like at the defensive end of the floor more than anything. Agreed. Let's take a quick break there. We'll come back. We'll talk about these couple of trades. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Jeremy Grant is a Portland Trailblazer. Christian Wood is a Dallas Maverick. These are the trades that have sort of gotten the ball rolling on the offseason. We may have more of them to talk about after draft night. We'll see. But for now, let's get some early impressions on those deals and what they mean for the Western Conference would-be contenders that swung them. I mean, for Portland, it's just like, here we are in this now summer of 2022 and you know, God bless them. They are still trying to make it work, keep Dame happy and keep plugging away and just hope that at some point as you keep changing things around Dame, they will find the recipe based on the fact they have traded for Jeremy Grant and then the you know reports out there about them really wanting OG Ananobi and some other guys. Lou Dort, I think, was another. Like, It's very obvious that they they understand their defensive liabilities and the need to protect Dame and like, I think what they're going, going, trying to go about doing, I understand, I agree with in the event that they clearly believe Dame continues to be there. And I think there was even, there's even been reporting that even at their like draft workouts, Dame has been there for all of them. So to his credit, he also is at least still showing that he is as committed as ever to them. So there's that clearly they are very much still in, we're trying to win and win with Dame. I think it's, you know, a, a very low risk play. They they got better. Jeremy Grant, whatever you think of him, is a good player. You know, how good, I guess we can bait, but he is good. They got better and they did it at the expense of a 2025 first rounder. And I think moving down like 10 spots in the second round of this draft, if I'm not mistaken. So pretty low risk on a guy. Also, Jeremy Grant, I think he's making just under 20 or 21 million next season. And then that's it. And then he'll be expiring. So not a lot of risk involved to get better for a team that is still in, we're trying to get better and trying to win mode. I get all of that. Uh, my question, I guess, would be, and my confusion more on the Grant side is like, there's been reports for a while now that 
the things Grant wanted is, you know, he wanted to get paid, but he wanted a, he wanted to continue having a big role. Like he was not interested in going somewhere where a he'd have to take a pickup or an offensive role cut. Well, guess what? He's going <laughs> he's going to play with one of the most ball dominant offensive stars of this generation, and his offensive role is about to be. You're talking about Anthony Simons, or <laughs> yeah, but for real, like. So that's one thing I, I do want, like, and I thought about this at the time too. And I was talking about it even on the pod when those r- reports about Jeremy Grant came out. And I was like, oh, that, if that's how you are. If that's how you want to be. If that's the things you prioritize and value, all good. You're entitled to that. But just know then that's not going to ever mean you playing on a winning team. I'm curious to see if the Blazers are good this year, whether that does quell his thirst for that offense role or maybe not. Maybe. You know, maybe in December we're talking about a good Blazers team, but also still reading reports that Jeremy Grant hates his role. I don't know. And I also think it's interesting because then even when you look at the reports about an OG, not that I believe the Raps are actually going to make that move, but I still find it interesting where it's like the Blazers are seemingly targeting all these guys who will help them defensively, who will make them a little more versatile, all that insulate Dame a bit, but they're targeting guys, it seems, who... The reason they were reportedly on the block to begin with, well, in Grant's case, he's going to be expiring. But a guy like OG, the reason he's reportedly on the block is because he's reportedly not happy with his offensive role and thirst for more. And it's like, well, let's compile all these guys on a team with Dame. I'm not really sure how that's going to work offensively. But other than that, I see what the Blazers are doing. I think they've made a low-risk play here to get better. And then from Detroit's perspective, I kind of like it too because – all the reports out there is that they weren't getting any better deals than this. Grant was going to be expiring. They most likely weren't going to keep him because they didn't want to pay what they'd have to pay to keep him. Uh, and so they got a first round pick and moved up in the second round of this year's draft to dump that guy. So I think it's a very sensible trade on both sides. You know, I, not sure how much it really shakes up the West. I think the Blazers are better, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, that's th- those are all my thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm interested to see where Grant lands or like the balance that he strikes between the high level three and D role player. He was in Denver and OKC before that, you know, between that and the lower level self creator that he tried to be in Detroit, because I think somewhere in between those two players is someone who could be a really valuable contributor for Portland. I do think his defense is a tad bit overrated. And so the the interesting thing to me about the Blazers in light of everything we just talked about is Anthony Simon is about to be an RFA. I'm assuming they're going to match any offer sheet to keep him around. Like they're not going to lose him for nothing. They just went through this whole eight year run basically with Dame and CJ in the backcourt traded CJ because they finally, you know, had to admit to themselves that it wasn't working. It wasn't working primarily because they couldn't make it work at the defensive end. Now they have Simons who is ascendant. He had a, you know, kind of quietly great year this past season. Like one of the most improved players in the league, in my opinion, probably more dynamic as like a scorer playmaker hybrid than McCollum was. I think he's more credible as like a point guard type. But in my mind is like actually a worse defender than McCollum. And so you're kind of in the same situation where they're they're going to 
try everything they can, I suppose. Like, and you see it with them going and getting Grant, a, a guy they've targeted for a while and a, a type of player that they've tried, you know, look, they brought in Robert Covington. There were reports of them trying to get Aaron Gordon. Like they wanted the sort of hybrid forward three and D specialist type of player who was going to make that defensively deficient backcourt viable to provide it some kind of insulation. They get Grant, you know, they want to get OG. I don't think that's going to work out for them. Like, I don't think that's happening, but they clearly recognize the need to put more defensively capable players around those two guys. I just don't know that it can actually work with a defensively deficient backcourt like that. I think they're going to run into a lot of the same problems that they ran into in the Dame and CJ era, except Dame is now on the wrong side of 30 and probably not trending in the right direction. Now, you know, Simons is trending the other way and maybe he gets good enough that they, you know, can put together a top five offense and just sort of figure it out uh, and be like league average defensively. But again, that whole conversation we had about defensive versatility, man, it's hard to be defensively versatile with, with two really poor defenders in the backcourt, you know, who are size deficient and, you know, don't always make the proper rotations, can't necessarily operate in a versatile team scheme. Like we saw last year, the Blazers tried to switch things up and, and completely overhaul their pick and roll coverage where, they're playing their bigs up at the level. They're blitzing. They're trying to navigate the three on fours on the backside. And it's like continually, there are just these little guys who are having to be the low men and make those rotations. And they were getting completely shredded. And I don't see how that changes. I mean, Grant is a guy who can give you some secondary rim protection. So I understand them wanting to to bring him in. But I still don't think it's going to be enough. Like I, I still find it hard to imagine this team climbing out of the bottom 10 in defensive efficiency. Yeah, they're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah. It's still, the ship still be sinking. But like, that's, I, you know, I, at the same time, like, I, I totally understand this move from their perspective because unless, yes. unless they're going full scorched earth, which you can argue that's what they should be doing. But if they're not doing that, if they're keeping Dame, then the only thing to do is try to like make the team as good as it can possibly be around exactly. him in the present. So I don't have an issue with them, you know, shelling out what I think. It was a first rounder, the pick swap, the second round pick swap in yeah. tonight's draft that saw them yeah. move down 10 spots and two yeah. future seconds. And the first rounder is a Milwaukee pick. Now it, it isn't 2025. So who knows what the Bucks look like in 2025? Maybe it'll prove to be a good pick. It's only protected one to four. So that could work out really well for Detroit. But I think, you know, as long as Giannis is there, I feel like you bet on the Bucks still being pretty good and not losing too much sleep over sending that pick out. Yeah. And, and that's why I'm saying like, even though it is just rearranging the dextures on the Titanic, we know where this is going to ultimately end up and it's on the ocean floor. I, I still do understand what they're doing because they've clearly made the decision that they're, they're sticking with this and, and, and trying. Right. And do I think they should be going scorched earth and, and, you know, starting fresh? Yes, but they're clearly not going to do that. So in the meantime, if they're going to continue to make moves to try to appease Dame and try to build a, a team as good as possible, then this is about as perfect a movie you can make in terms of like getting better without taking on any real long-term risk, without really depleting your asset capital, like all that stuff. So they got better, didn't take a risk to do it. I mean, that's pretty much it from their perspective. The Pistons too, like I mentioned, it's good for them because they're they're moving a guy that they knew wasn't going to be part of their future plans anyway, that they probably weren't going to get you know, more than this anyway for, 
the other important thing I didn't mention in that little rant was that they now uh, can, I think, end up with about $43 million in cap space. So they are Kyrie Irving, much... come on down. <laughs> well, I think, you know, all the reporting and, and I think all the signs continue to point to them being the team, the most obvious team to throw the max offer sheet at DeAndre Ayton. Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if they did, that would. St- I, th- I still think that would get matched because I don't think Phoenix is going to be willing to lose Aiton for nothing. So I feel like it's more likely that they either A, get used as a stalking horse, you know, for someone like Kyrie to like use as leverage to get what he wants from Brooklyn, you know, or James Harden or Bradley Beal or any other free agent that is going to try and negotiate with their team and convince them that they're not just negotiating against themselves, essentially. Either that or they're like the dumping ground for a Tobias Harris contract and they pull in, you yeah. know, another asset or two by by absorbing a player like that. Like that's how I imagine that playing out. And by the way, that's not bad business. Like I do think no, a no. big selling point for them with this deal was they get to trade Grant into the Blazers trade exception and they don't have to take any bad money back in return. Okay, quickly, Christian Wood to the Mavs. Thoughts? So I don't know if I'm in the minority here, but I really like this for the Mavs. And I think this is a more impactful move than the Jeremy Grant one. It's not even that I'm necessarily that high on Christian Wood. I understand all the concerns with him. I, like the reason he went undrafted despite all the talent. The reason he's available, you know, for such a paltry price. The re- like this is a guy, he's still in his prime, 26-year-old big man who over the last couple of years has averaged about 19 and 10 on 59% true shooting. He can shoot, he can score inside, he can kind of put the ball on the floor. He can do everything offensively at his size is a really good complimentary piece making, I think what, like 15 million a year. Like the fact that he's available like this easily, despite being statistically financially, what should be like the biggest bargain in the league tells you something. Okay. There was the issues this year. I think John Lucas called him out for not playing hard. He got suspended for a game because he refused to check in in the second half after getting benched in the first half. Like I understand all of those things and completely understand why people think, it won't be any different in Dallas. He's not a winning player. His defense is horrible, all that. I also think, given the situation the Mavs are in, that I have lamented all season, the fact that they had kind of already somehow backed themselves into a corner despite it being so early in Lucas' career because they didn't have the asset capital. the caps, They're cap-strapped with contracts coming up. They didn't have draft capital to get better. I don't think, given the situation they were in, they could have got a player more talented than this. And so they were in a situation where to dramatically improve their championship odds and their supporting cast around Luka, they needed to take a swing for the fences on a guy like this, right? And I think from that perspective, giddy up, because there are reasons to believe if if even it's going to be one year, I'm not even talking about, you know, he'll be the, the supporting piece of the future for Luka, but for one year, I think if Christian Wood's going to do it, it's going to be this year. He's in a contract year. He's going to be playing on a good team for literally the first time in his career. Like, he played on the Bucs uh, the year they finished with the best record, but he played sparingly and didn't even last all season with them. In terms of since he's been a full-time player, his teams have finished 30th, 30th, and 26th, okay, in, in the overall standings. The guy has never played a meaningful game beyond the All-Star break, if even that deep into a season. So... Uh, as much as you can say he isn't a winning player and all this, he's also never been in a situation where he's been given the chance to contribute to a winning team. I think sometimes 
when a guy puts up numbers like that in a situation like that, it's very, people are too quick to dismiss him as, you know, even being possible to contribute to a winning team. This guy's very talented, makes a lot of sense as a pick and roll guy or a pick and pop guy for a pick and roll heavy team with a pick and roll maestro. Um, I think when you look at that, when you look at his ability to score inside and out shooting, uh, the defensive rebounding, I think he can give them a lot of what they hoped Porzingis could give them, but at half the price. The defense is the concern, but again, if there's one year I think he could get focused and play some defense, it will be the year he's going into a contract year, playing for a winning team for the first time in his career, playing some meaningful ball. So a bit of a gamble on a you know, questionable reputation guy around the league. I get it, but again, I, I look at it as like, I did not think the Mavs were capable of getting someone this talented based on what their asset situation looked like, and they pulled that off. And so... I completely understand it to support it from their perspective. And I actually think the the, the Wood-Doncic pairing and him in this offense could actually be like scary good. And I, I think people are about to realize how good this guy actually is despite all those other things. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned Porzingis and how like the Porzingis thing kind of went belly up for them. But Wood to me is probably a better offensive player than Porzingis at this stage. Much better finisher, like rolls and finishes on the roll much more frequently and like he's been a better shooter over the last three years and Porzingis has has a little bit of a face-up game I I think certainly offensively it can work like gangbusters obviously the defense is where you're going to see the concerns start to creep in but I think at the end of the day like the Mavs stumbled upon a formula that worked for them in this last postseason I can totally see a scenario where the playoffs roll around and Christian Wood is coming off the bench playing like 15 minutes a game. And in that case, I think the the sort of best case scenario for Dallas is he is their Bobby Portis, where he is playing minutes against transitional lineups that allow him to survive defensively. And also hopefully like with the stakes increasing, his effort improves and his performance improves at that end, just like Portis's did. And he's giving them an offensive dynamic off the bench where like he can come in and he can play minutes with Luca, but when Luca's off the floor, he can still give them an offensive element that they really need. And at like $13 million a year, I think that's fine. Like you can live with the player who helps you in the regular season, gets his role scaled down in the playoffs. And as, yep. as like a low cost flyer, like I, I like it for them. I think it's a, it's a solid acquisition. I just think they have to know how to use him. And if he's their Bobby Portis, then great. Yep. And the last thing I want to say is if he can play even just like passable defense, okay, I'm not asking for the world here. If he can, I think it's really interesting that that formula they found in the playoffs where it's kind of like five out or four out, if you will, around Luka can now still be done, but without sacrificing size because he can give that spacing to them and the shooting to them again, without really sacrificing size in the middle. Yeah. Although, you know, you wonder what his size actually accomplishes when he's not an especially good rim protector and Right. He, he's a he's a fine rebounder. I wouldn't say a good one necessarily, but yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how they use him and what his effort level looks like in a situation where uh, it's actually going to matter. So yeah, those are uh, our thoughts on those trades, our thoughts on the postseason as a whole, and like I say, depending on what happens tonight, we may have another segment to tack onto this to talk about any further transactions that shake up the landscape of the league. But for now, we're going to leave that there. Uh, we aren't going to do a fan shout out on this episode, but we will do two on the next episode to make up for it. I unfortunately just have to get out of here right now. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to y'all soon. Pound the rock. (laughs) 